Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, the Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Anything that goes against national security, of course, will take the right decisions. From a new strategy in the Indo-Pacific to Chinese interference in Haiti, we will speak to the minister about the challenges Canada faces internationally and where this country is being asked to help around the world. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The Intergovernmental Affairs Minister and the Foreign Affairs Minister appeared before a Commons Committee this week. They were asked questions about Chinese interference in the 2019 campaign. Now, the concern follows a global news report published last month, but while an intelligence briefing did warn of an active foreign interference campaign, Dominic Leblanc said an assessment found no negative effect on the results or on the outcomes of the vote. For her part, the foreign minister seemed to equate any interference to online disinformation. I did speak with Melanie Jolie about the issue and others on Wednesday. Minister Jolie, thank you for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Listen, I want to begin here with your appearance uh, before a Commons Committee this week because the committee members, they really wanted to know uh, about these reports of Chinese meddling in the 2019 election. I'm wondering what you might be able to share with people who are watching this interview right now about that incident or incidences of interference? Well, I answered the committee yesterday, uh, as mentioned by the Prime Minister, as mentioned by the NSIA, Jody Thomas, as mentioned also by uh, my colleague Dominique Leblanc, we have no information regarding uh, such interference. Uh, foreign interference in the 2019 elections. Of course, we take this issue extremely seriously because obviously it's in our own public interest, uh, our own shared interest to address this issue, but we don't have any information to that regard. So you don't know, for example, whether or not it's just limited to the 2019 vote or whether or not it's just limited to those uh, dozen or so ridings and candidates? Well, you know, we have no information to that regard. What I can tell you, though, is before the 2019 elections, we had concerns regarding uh, foreign interference, uh, particularly in light of the, uh, what had happened in other democracies. And when I think about foreign interference, I particularly think about disinformation online, and, uh, which is affecting all democracies. And we know already that China and Russia is undergoing proactive a disinformation online campaigns to destabilize many democracies, including ours. And so that's why we put into place an important uh, process, which is headed by nonpartisan experts. And they also said that in 2019, there was no foreign interference. And so that is why the uh, story uh, that came out regarding this 2019 uh, possible foreign interference is important, but at the same time, we need to have evidence. And right now, 
I don't have that evidence, the Prime Minister doesn't have that evidence, our public service and national security agencies, including CSIS, don't have that intelligence. So that's the information I can provide you today. Mm -hmm. so, so I do wonder then, because you did meet with your Chinese counterparts on the sidelines, yeah. but you did meet with them uh, when you were in Bali for the G20. So what did you say to them regarding interference? If you did not have specifics, what were you actually talking to them about? Well, definitely disinformation online, because we know that there is proactive disinformation happening. And I said in general that foreign interference is not tolerable in Canada. We just won't accept it. And so it was not a conversation. I looked at him in the eye and that what in the eyes and that's what I told him. So this is what we do in diplomacy. We actually give tough messages sometimes and sometimes we are much more in collaboration mode. But when it comes to foreign interference, this is about the strength and the viability of our own democracy. So basically our position is, is, is the same with every single country, period. Now, as we talk about China, you know, of course, you did unveil a new Indo-Pacific strategy at the end of November. You, yes. you described China during that announcement as a disruptive global power. And that really is a huge shift because back in 2017, uh, your government described China as an important partner. So, so is your strategy now an acknowledgement that China is no longer a friend? Well, clearly, China has interests that departs from our interests. And China works every day more and more to either um, violate international norms or I would say also bend international norms in their favor. Uh, there are two schools of thoughts which are in opposition right now. The one that um, is the one that basically President Putin is abiding by, which is essentially international norms do not uh, and should not be, um, uh, how can I say, followed uh, because he believes that being a nuclear power and, and having a sphere of influence is more important. And at the same time, there's us and our allies and actually many countries around the world which are about really protecting international norms. Canada have, has been an architect of developing these international norms following the Second World War. These norms has, have kept us uh, safe uh, since, since that time. And we need to make sure that we work obviously with our friends, obviously with our allies, but also with many other countries which have in common with Canada the protection of the UN Charter and also the protection of the basic principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity which are at the core of the world's stability. So if we are diverging in philosophies then, what does that mean for something like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank? As you know, Conservatives have been raising that issue for years now. They, they, they basically say at this point that Liberals are talking the talk, not walking the walk. What does it mean for the, the future of Canada's involvement with that bank? Is it done? Is it going to wrap up? Well, what we've done, we've addressed this issue uh, in the Indo-Pacific strategy, and I know the Minister of Finance also is on this. But what I can tell you, though, is that in the, in the Indo-Pacific strategy, what we decided to do is to invest even more in bilateral support and bilateral infrastructure support. So we decided to put $750 million into an infrastructure fund through FINDEV, and that will be helpful for countries across the region that are in need of infrastructure, particularly infrastructure that deal with the impacts of climate change. I'm thinking of the Philippines, I'm thinking about 
Vietnam, about India, and definitely also about uh, Indonesia and, uh, and Singapore. So these are just uh, countries that we will engage with regarding this very issue. But will you divest yourself of the, the investment bank, though? But again, that's a 1% share, to my understanding, that Canada has, but it is a bank in, in league with China. Will we divest ourselves out of that bank? Well, what we said regarding that bank also is since many countries, including European counterparts, are part of it, we want to make sure that all our investments are well taken care of and at the same time follow the basic guidelines of international norms. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we increase our influence in the region and that's why we're investing even more money through FinDev and that infrastructure fund. Mm -hmm. In terms of the ownership of the bank, though, is that something to be de debated in future? Of course, everything that goes against our national security will guide, you know, our national security will guide our decisions, and anything that goes against national security, of course, will take the right decisions. Okay. Uh, listen, I also want to talk about Haiti, uh, uh, because the Prime Minister, as you well know, mm -hmm. wants European countries to join Canada uh, and sanction Haitian players who have ties to gangs that have been terrorizing the country. How important are those sanctions? How important is it that Europe get on side with what Canada has already done? Well, sanctions in Haiti against the political and the economic elite are extremely important. Um, Canada has been, uh, I would say, forward-leaning when it comes to imposing sanctions. Our goal is definitely to make sure that the U.S. imposes more sanctions, the Europeans as well. And I'm having important discussions with my counterparts to that regard because we think this will create enough pressure on those that are benefiting from the violence that is spread by the gangs throughout Haiti. And so it is a new way to put pressure. It has never been done, but there's no impunity for those who support the gangs. And there's no impunity for also the ones in charge of the gangs. So we know that the Asian people are right now suffering in Haiti. We want to be there to help them. We will be there to help them. But of course, we will support any solutions as long as they're Haitian-led and also by and for Haitians. Well, to that, Ambassador Bob Ray did brief your government on his mission to Haiti. Mm -hmm. uh, we know there is a desire. We, In fact, we heard it from the U.S. Secretary of State when he was standing right beside you here in Ottawa. Uh, there's this desire for Canada to lead a multinational effort in Haiti. Do you think, based on what you heard from Ambassador Ray, do you think there is a role for Canada to play? Of course there's a role for Canada to play in Haiti, and we're playing it right now through our sanctions, through our humanitarian aid, but also to, through having this important conversation about the security of Haiti. Canada has been a long friend, a long-time friend to Haiti. It will continue to be. And yes, indeed, because we are a bilingual country, because we've always had a good relationship with Haitians people, people because we have a big diaspora also from Haiti and Canada, we have that expertise, we have that experience, we've been involved through the UN in many of their missions, and we will continue to help the Haitians that are suffering, like I mentioned a bit earlier. Minister, I appreciate you're very busy. Just one more question, yes. if you don't mind. It's and this okay. has to do with Ukraine, because I, I do want to get your thoughts. Not so much here in Canada, but right now in the United States, we're seeing uh, a number of Republicans now starting to question the monetary commitments 
and support for Ukraine as this war goes on. What would you say to Canadians who may also have similar questions about the, the money committed by Canada to support this war effort? Well, indeed, we've been very supportive. We believe in the importance of supporting Ukraine through military aid, through financial support, through humanitarian aid, because it is fundamental uh, to make sure that Ukraine wins. Because you, the Ukrainians are right now fighting for their lives, but also fighting for their freedom and our freedom. And so by supporting Ukraine, we will make sure that we send a strong message to all these uh, countries that, are, that uh, even think of invading their neighbor. Mr. Jolie, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, the House of Commons is a quiet place right now. The fall sitting is officially over. MPs heading back to their ridings for the holiday break. And much has been accomplished, but there is still much work left undone. That includes the provinces and Ottawa stuck in a stalemate over health care. And with that, let's bring in our political observers. Susan Smith is principal with the Blue Sky Strategy Group. Kate Harrison is vice chair with Summa Strategies. And Kim Wright is principal for Wright Strategies. Nice to see all three of you. Uh, Susan, I'll get you to start us off because here we have the provinces. They want Ottawa to invest more in health care. They want reliable and predictable funding. Now, I spoke with the Premier of New Brunswick, and he, like other provincial leaders, he says they want a meeting with Justin Trudeau directly. Now, Trudeau seems to say the ball is in the premier's court. So what more is he looking for if there is this desire amongst premiers already expressed? What's he waiting for? Well, I think what's important to understand in this particular case on the health care issue, Michael, is that the health ministers have agreed on what needs to be done. They've agreed that there should be more investment in recruitment and retention and foreign credential recognition for nurses and doctors. They've agreed on data sharing, but the premiers have said to their ministers, no, 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 don't be talking about that publicly. We wanna battle this out premier to prime minister. And so I think there's politics at play here really quite significantly and a bit to the detriment of the healthcare system at the moment. Uh, the premiers are looking for a 35% in their terms of 35% um, uh, contribution, no strings attached. The feds already give the province, they cover about 38% through a combination of cash and tax transfer points. So it's how the math is being done on either side and the fact that the premiers just want a blank check. And I think in this day and age, you can't just hand over a blank check. You have to show what those improvements will be. Uh, That's where I think the impasse is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Kate, what, what, what's your take on this? Because I, I wonder if you understand where Ottawa is coming from. Here you have the provinces, uh, for the most part, in surplus. In fact, they're giving out checks in Alberta and Quebec. Is it disingenuous of the provinces to say that they need more money for health care? I don't know that it's disingenuous, but I do think that it's uh, not a holistic look at the problem. Um, of course, if you're the federal government right now, you don't want to be anywhere near the healthcare file. It is a complete mess. Uh, from their perspective, it's provincial jurisdiction. Uh, and they want the premiers, particularly conservative premiers, uh, to wear uh, just how bad the situation is in provinces like Ontario uh, and elsewhere in the prairies, et cetera. Uh, so from Ottawa's perspective, uh, you don't want to be near that conversation. 
but from the premier's perspective, uh, this is very much a mutual responsibility and a shared responsibility. Uh, Susan mentioned the foreign credentialing, recruitment, retention, those are all uh, supported uh, by the federal government. There's other things the federal government can be doing right now, working to speed up, for example, the ability of pharmacists to prescribe uh, to make simple prescriptions. So uh, this is very much an area where they need to be working together. I don't think it's too much to ask uh, the man who is in meeting all days uh, for a meeting with the country's provincial leaders to discuss such an important issue. Mm -hmm. uh, now, Kim, uh, Jagmeet Singh says he, he he's ready to pull support for the Liberal government if there's no movement on health care. How serious is that threat or is really this uh, a case of crying wolf? It's not a case of crying wolf at all. In fact, Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats have been very clear on this confidence and supply agreement that it is an ongoing discussion, an ongoing dialogue between the parties, between party leadership, uh, to make sure that the priorities of Canadians, including health care, are actually being lived up to. And viewers will often hear me say, show me your budget and I'll show you your values. If we truly value healthcare in this country and we recognize coming out of the pandemic uh, some of the colossal failures and visions within our, our within the federation on how each province uh, deals with healthcare, we know that there has been a starving of a system in some instances, uh, and there needs to be a recalibration in others. So this is a priority, and what we, what New Democrats have always said, has been that healthcare, the delivery of publicly accessible healthcare across the country, is a top priority. Always has been, always will be, and that's what we're here to fight for. Susan, what do you make of Mr. Singh's threat? Do you think the deal is in danger? I don't think it's in immediate danger, but that Mr. Singh has to do that. He can't look like he's too close to the Liberals ever, or he loses his validity or his his value as a, the leader of a separate party. So he, you know, he worked with the Liberals and dental care uh, got passed this semester or this this term. I think that's an excellent, um, a huge win for both the Liberals and the NDP. Uh, Mr. Singh can say, hey, I contributed to that, but he doesn't want to look too close. And Kim's right. It was always part of the deal uh, or the terms at the beginning was that they would um, they would support the, the government on matters of confidence and supply. That's money and things like the throne speech and the budget, et cetera, but that they would disagree. So I am not surprised that Mr. Singh would disagree. He needs to carve out his own space. He needs to make sure the closer we get to the end of this minority government, that he does occupy his own space and that people can make a distinction between Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyev and Jagmeet Singh. And the more, you know, as the way things go with this current parliament uh, as it sits, it very much looks like it will be a, a decision between the Liberals and the Conservatives in the next election. Those are the two sides of the aisle distinctly for people. So Mr. Singh is fighting for his spot. Uh, Kate, what do you make uh, of, of uh, his words that he would pull support if there was not more healthcare dollars? Yeah, let's be real about who's in control of the supply arrangement. Uh, it is the Liberals and it is Justin Trudeau. Um, certainly they are the ones that are going to control uh, when uh, when we go to the next election. I think uh, the NDP, of course, uh, have a lot of work to do in terms of their ground game, in terms of fundraising. We saw that play out uh, in, a, in a relatively poor performance from the NDP uh, this past week uh, in the by-election in Mississauga. So uh, the Liberals are holding the cards here. Uh, this is very much about posturing on the part of the NDP. He's right to do it because contrast wins campaigns, uh, but I wouldn't be looking at this 
and saying that this is a sign that the agreement is uh, is up in the air. Uh, I think very much it's here to stay until Justin Trudeau says that it's not. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you mentioned the by-election in Mississauga Lakeshore. I want to also talk about that as well, because here we have uh, the former Ontario Finance Minister, Charles Sousa, winning that, uh, that vote, that by-election. Kim, the Tories did not really move the bar, even with Poliev in leadership. You know, Kate might be talking about the NDP in that riding, but uh, the, the Conservatives didn't really move the bar. What does that tell you about Tory hopes uh, of trying to take uh, seats in, in the the rich area of GTA in any election. Yeah, Kate and the Conservatives want to talk about, you know, New Democrats being sidelined. And, and I appreciate that because what we saw out of this is that Pierre Polyev might have been able to handily win uh, the Conservative leadership vote. But when it comes to Gen Pop, uh, the, you know, to the voters, to conservative and potential conservative voters, they are just not having this. And in fact, the conservatives vote went down from almost winning in the last general election under Aaron O'Toole uh, to getting less than half of their vote to show up this time. That should call, cause for serious cause for concern for the Polyev team. Can they show up? They've had uh, organizers, key organizers, uh, on the ground in Mississauga Lakeshore all the way through, and it just didn't translate. In fact, Mr. Polyev tried to stay away from it, as he has done with mainstream media. He's now staying away from voters. It does cause for concern, and it should, and, and conservatives I have talked to uh, are, are rightly questioning what they've gotten themselves into. It was the criticism of Mr. Polyev uh, going into the leadership, it's great to it's great to get people to sign up those memberships. Uh, but can you deliver them to the ballot box when it when it counts? And it looks like absolutely not. So he, if if this had been an Aaron O'Toole by election, Mr. Polyev would have been the first one sharpening the knives. So I have some questions about some conservative conversations over the holidays. Uh, Susan, what do you make of the result in Mississauga Lakeshore? Well, it was uh, Charles Souza is a very strong candidate. He was a provincial finance minister, Ontario, well known and a household name. So, I congratulations to him on winning the seat with over fifty percent of the vote. That's that's what you want to look out, look at. Look, by elections usually are unfavorable to sit in government. So, the fact that Mr. Souza won in largely a liberal friendly riding, but won handily and with a larger margin than the last federal election, is something that I think the Conservatives should be thinking about. I think the 905 is going to be a real battle uh, in the next election. Um, Pierre Polyev is going to have to show uh, moderate Canadians that he's not uh, the pugilist that he has prided himself on being. And he's always said he's not going to change. So that may leave him a bit uh, or a lot behind in, in the 905 region. Um, the next election will be very interesting. One by-election does not a federal election make. But I think Mr. Souza won handily. People said in that riding definitely said no thank you to Pierre Polyev and his kind of politics. Uh, and the Conservatives need to read those tea leaves and see if they need to pivot and adjust. I'm not sure Polyev can or will because he's so dug in on I don't want to talk to the media and maybe he doesn't want to talk to people who aren't asking him the exact questions he wants to either. He's still he's a bubble boy. Uh, so he's going to have to change that if he wants to win the country. Mm -hmm. Kate, any lessons for the Tories here? I think so. I'm not sure that it will be a total strategic overhaul because, to Susan's point, uh, there was a lot of dynamics in this particular by-election that were not going in the Conservatives' favour. 
but that's not an excuse. Uh, the, the party performed much better in 2021, uh, a 20-point differential. Uh, I don't think anybody's patting themselves on the back over that over at party headquarters. So uh, there should be some considerations given about what might need to change. I think that uh, the real lesson to be learned here is going back to what uh, worked for uh, Stephen Harper's government, uh, Jason Kenney, when he was Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, and that is building authentic and genuine relationships uh, with Canadians um, from multicultural backgrounds. Uh, that is an absolute must. Uh, the party has now hired somebody to, to take that on and coordinate outreach. Uh, and so I think many Conservatives are hoping for a much better performance um, in subsequent by-elections and in the GTA writ large, uh, heading into whenever the next election should be. Mm -hmm. I'm going to correct myself as well. I said rich GTA. I should have meant seat-rich GTA. I'm just told I made that that trip. So seat-rich GTA. Uh, listen, Susan, uh, you, talking about Charles Sousa, though, he, as you said, he, he did win. It does raise the specter of a potential cabinet shuffle, uh, or else... Mr. Sousa would have to really be content uh, to sit in the back benches. What do you say to that? I don't think anything's been promised to Charles Sousa. Uh, there have been people who've been in cabinet, highly capable people who have yet to make the front benches of cabinet. So I think the, the prime minister will have to think long and hard about the deep talent pool that now includes Mr. Sousa as he contemplates a shuffle. I fully expect a shuffle in the new year. There will be people who are not, uh, who are retiring, not running again. The Prime Minister will want to shake things up. Will Charles Souza be in the mix? I think absolutely they'll be looking at him, but it wouldn't shock me if he wasn't in the mix uh, for the next shuffle this time around. We'll see, like I said, deep bench, great talent pool for the Prime Minister to draw from. Um, lots of regional, gender, uh, ethnic balance. Uh, to contend with. Cabinet making is not fun, I don't think, for people. So we'll see what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. Kate, what are you watching out for here? Yeah, well, there could be a bit of a caucus management issue that accompanies a cabinet shuffle. Uh, there have been a lot of people waiting for a long time and maybe because they're not from the uh, part of a part of a country that's maybe overrepresented uh, over in cabinet, they're not getting their, their fair shake. Um, so if you allow Charles Sousa into cabinet without in some way recognizing the many other people that um, that have been uh, waiting for their opportunity, uh, you might have more and more caucus members start to express some disappointment and displeasure at that. So I think it's a very likely possibility for a shuffle. One's been rumored for a while. A lot of ministers have had to do um, some hard work in portfolios that I think they're not particularly fond of and they're looking for a change. And that could be an opportunity for Sousa to come in, but it should be an opportunity uh, for some others that have been waiting patiently uh, for their turn as well. Yeah, and Kim, what are you looking at here? Well, then there's the additional layer of the Ontario Liberal Party leadership, and there are a couple of uh, folks who are senior Liberals in Ontario uh, who are looking to uh, maybe take a shift to provincial politics. Um, you know, you would look at people like Nate Erskine-Smith, we look at people like Yasser Nakfi uh, and others within the Ontario Liberal Caucus who have been uh, testing the water, shall we speak. So those will be also things beyond the retirements and the and the long in the tooth nature of this federal government uh, that the Prime Minister is going to have to look at. And, you know, Christian Freeland cannot continue to be the essentially the minister of everything when you've got some other folks who uh, who would like some rewards as well. Okay, well, listen, uh, before you three go, uh, let's talk about Jim Carr, of course, uh, passing away this week, uh, meant a lot to many people on the Hill. Uh, Susan, any thoughts? 
Yeah, thank thank you, Michael. He was a lovely man, and my my condolences go to his family and to his caucus colleagues. I met him while he was still a candidate. Uh, he had a real presence, a real warmth. Um, he really um, was working for the interests of all Canadians. I spoke to my friend, Phil Fontaine, who knows Jim, of course, as a fellow Manitoban. And he said, you know, Jim called me my brother and I called him my brother. And to me, that's testimony to uh, Jim Carr's uh, commitment to uh, make listening, learning and making life better for as many people as he could in his career in public service. So I'm very sorry for his loss. Kate. Yeah, um, not much more to add than what when what Susan said. But what I think is is really respectable about Jim, he he was a true parliamentarian. Um, he wasn't overly partisan. Uh, he was willing to work with others, um, and he came to politics from a pretty different background, um, a musical background, a business background. Um, and in looking at what you want in a politician, you wanted to be a representative of of the Canadian people. And I think he did, he was that person for for many in Manitoba. And so. Uh, condolences to, to his family and to his colleagues. We we did lose a, a good parliamentarian this week. Mm -hmm. uh, Kim? Absolutely. You know, it, it's easy to get caught up in the rough and tumble of question period and partisan bickering and, you know, these types of panels that seem to the audience to look uh, a bit more rough and tumble than, you know, how much people become friends outside of these, uh, these situations. And Jim Carr really embodied that spirit uh, with his par uh, parliamentary colleagues, uh, with staff, with just people across Canada, and I certainly has con my condolences to his 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 friends, his family. Uh, but hopefully, uh, his legacy is that the next generation of politicians and parliamentarians look to folks like Jim Carr as a as a guiding light of how you should do in politics. Lovely words. Uh, thank you. Three, uh, to the three of you for all of that, uh, including that tribute. Susan, Kate, and Kim, thank you. Have a great holiday break. Uh, we'll see you in the new year. Thanks, Michael. Sounds great. Thank you. And that is our program for tonight. I'm Michael Serapio. Thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow. Stay with us here on CPAC. L'Essentiel avec Esther Bégin is up next. <laughs>